0: good morning everybody good to see everybody here thanks for for being here this morning if I haven't met you yet my name is Dan Halleck and I'm the lead pastor here I'm so thankful you're here and thankful you came out today I wanted to read this I was looking at the thinking about the songs we were singing this morning one of the verses says and while I draw my final breath I'll rest upon your grace. And when I close my eyes in death, I'll wake to see your face. And that was just on my heart this morning as <clears throat> our brother Orville Simpson went to be with the Lord yesterday. And uh, it's a privilege to be with him and pray with him in his last minutes and, and to celebrate that for those of us who are united to Christ through faith, that death is no longer something to fear, but it's the gateway we enter to experience the greatest joy we've ever known. And uh, we are so thankful that Christ's grip on us is so much more powerful than our grip on him, even in our dying moments. And so, it's a, it's a good, it's a good thing uh, to, to have that hope in Jesus. If you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to Acts chapter three. A new number, three. Um, yep. Yep, Acts chapter three, verse one. If you're new with us, um, let me tell you a little bit about one of the things we we value here at our church. We value the Bible. We trust the Bible here. Um, We're devoted to teaching and preaching from the Bible because we agree with Jesus Christ that the Bible is trustworthy and totally true. Um, We believe what the Bible says, that its words were breathed out by God and written by chosen believers as they were carried along by God's Holy Spirit. And because we believe this, because we believe the Bible is God's word, then we also believe what the Bible says about itself. We believe that it is the truth, that it is without error, that it is a gift from God to us. We believe that uh, the Bible is a light to our path. It is, the revelation from God that that tells us who God is and who we are. It tells us why we need God to rescue us from this thing called sin and this place called hell. And it tells us how God has done this for us in Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us how God wants us to live, not to earn his love, but in response to his love. And the Bible tells us why God wants us to live for His glory and how by doing that, it results in our eternal joy. In the past few months, we've, we've been reading through a book of the Bible called Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles. And in this book, it describes what Jesus' first followers devoted themselves to after He rose from the dead, after He ascended. To heaven. So when he was no longer physically with them, what did the believers do? What did the followers do? Well, that's what this book describes. And and so far we've seen how the Holy Spirit filled Christians. Jesus went to a he ascended up to heaven, and the Holy Spirit descended from heaven and filled, indwelt the Christians. And together, Jesus's followers, we've read, de- devoted themselves to several things. They devoted themselves to. The apostles teaching and they devoted themselves to sharing life together they devoted themselves to breaking bread together and to praying together and it's also very clear that they took care of each other uh, they they shared it says all of their belongings with one another and they, it says they they even sold many of their possessions in order to give the proceeds to the poor christians among them and they didn't do this because they had to this wasn't a forced communistic agenda this this was something that they did because jesus had changed their lives and he had changed the way that they looked at the world around them and they were now new creations in christ and they were devoted to loving one another the same way that jesus had loved them that's what fueled this And this type of of self-sacrificing and Jesus Christ glorifying Christian community made Jesus' followers stand out in their cities. Uh, They lived differently than their neighbors. Uh, They they lived differently than those who didn't know Jesus or loved Jesus. And that contrast is clear in today's passage that we're gonna look at. So uh, we're gonna talk about it. We're gonna talk about what, what it means. And then we're going to talk about the implications this has for our life together as Christians here at Cedar Home. So let's, uh, let me ask the Lord to, to bless us as we open his word. Lord Jesus, we pray in your name and we ask you to help us now. We need you, Holy Spirit, to teach our minds and our hearts and our souls with your power. We, help, uh, we, we ask for your help to, 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 to help us see you as you really are to help us see you as glorious and gracious. And, and we ask that as you do that, you would humble us, humble our hearts, and help us, God, to love you and your, your word, because we can't do that on our own. And so please give us power now to obey you uh, with joy in our hearts. We just thank you for this time we have together. We ask that you would minister to us now and protect us physically and spiritually from evil. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's start by reading Acts 3, 1 to 10. And then uh, we'll go back through it and look at it verse by verse. And if you don't have a Bible with you, I think, yeah, we'll put it on the screen. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So verse one says that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, which was around 3 p.m., in the afternoon and, and, and Peter and John were two of the twelve apostles okay they were two of the twelve who Jesus had ordained to lead the early church now if Peter and John were Christians then why were they still going to the Jewish temple to pray well remember that many of the first Christians came from a Jewish background and Orthodox Jews um, believe in the Old Testament of the Bible okay so uh, in fact God gave us the Old Testament of our Bible through the Jews and remember that during his life on earth and after his resurrection Jesus took time with his disciples to open up God's word and to show them that all of the Old Testament points to Jesus and the early Jewish Christians rightly understood then that Jesus was the fulfillment of their Old Testament faith and so they had no problem going to the temple to pray and to worship the Lord because they understood now the Lord is Jesus. And uh, the Christians would eventually cut ties with the Jewish temple because the Jewish temple would, would be destroyed within a few decades. And also because they knew that the gospel of Jesus wasn't just for Jewish people. It was for people of every tribe, every nation, every people group around the world. this church the the early church it was an unprecedented bizarre community of people okay it just as it should be today okay Jews and Gentiles suddenly had unity okay and this wasn't like something that took place over centuries this was like boom something catalyzed this it was the resurrection of Jesus The Jews and Gentiles are suddenly hanging out together. The rich and the poor, the slaves, are all around the same table, eating at the same time. They have unity like never before. So since people from all races and social castes were trusting in Jesus, they came together in this new way as as a family that we call the church. And while the Christians... We're living in community, this new reality of incredible unity in Christ, they did so among non-believers who didn't have that kind of unity, okay? So that's, there was a contrast happening. And so verse 2 says that at the same time that Peter and John were going up to the temple to pray, another man was being carried to one of the entrances of the temple called the Beautiful Gate. And we don't know this man's name, but we we learn later on that this man was 40 years old. He was lame, which means here that he was physically disabled, he could not walk, and that he had, he'd been that way since birth. And so for the entirety of his life, this man had to rely on other people to carry him around everywhere. And every day, his family and friends would lay him down at the entrance of the temple, which this one was called the beautiful gate. Now, in those days, there was no government assistance, okay? There wasn't soup kitchens. There weren't homeless shelters. There there weren't equal opportunity employers. Poor, disabled men like this laid down and begged for money outside the temple, and they relied entirely on the compassion of other people. And in the Jewish religious system, giving alms to the poor is a virtuous act, Okay? In the Old Testament, God commanded the Jews to give to the poor. So if you were a physically disabled, poor Jewish person, you could reasonably expect other Jews to give you some help if for no other reason that they were commanded to. They had to. And this, this disabled Jewish man uh, is begging uh, his own people for money outside of of their Jewish temple, and it's a stark contrast to the way that Jesus' followers took care of one another. Acts 4.34 says that among the Christians, there wasn't one needy person because they gave generously to provide for each other's needs. And so needy people in the Christian community were treated very differently than they were treated elsewhere. Gordon Ketty writes this, this beggar was not in need just because he was a cripple, but because he was neglected by those who should have helped him. In Deuteronomy 15, four to 11, God had declared that the Jewish people were to have no poor among them. The, the Lord's people were supposed to take care of the poor among them. So what does this tell us about the condition of the Old Testament church in the first century? Well, suppose this. Suppose one of the members of your church was seen begging at the door every Sunday. One of the members. What would that say about your church? The, the fact of the beggar laying at the temple gates tells us that while he was sustained by the charity of individuals, the church as an organization was apparently not bothered about his plight. This is still, I'm reading his quote here. Uh, gordon Ketty, the man had begged all his days where was the organized obedience the organized compassion and sharing and giving and mercy and love it it the the old testament church had neglected the needy at its own door it had closed its eyes to its god-given responsibility to care for its own poor and needy brothers and sisters And this man's need was for something far greater than money, right? This man needed to belong, that's what he needed. He needed a place within his own faith community that recognized his dignity as a child of God and that integrated him into the work and witness of the people of God. Another pastor, Tony Merida, rightly says that we Christians now We must not get so busy doing religious stuff that we forget to serve the hurting people right in front of us. Hear that? Christians in the first century sacrificed what they had to provide for other Christians, and they didn't do this because they were forced to, but because they were so overwhelmed by the love of Jesus Christ that it was their joy to love others the way that they'd been loved by God. So what are some of the applications here for, for followers of Jesus today? Well, first, obviously, Christians need to take care of the poor Christians in their own fellowship. And also, Christians should try to help poor Christians in other parts of the world as they are able. The New Testament gives us examples of, of churches collecting money to help poor in their midst, the poor in their midst. And the New Testament always, also gives us examples of the church or churches Uh, COLLECTING MONEY TO HELP POOR CHRISTIANS IN DISTANT LANDS. AND OBVIOUSLY, WE CANNOT ERADICATE POVERTY AMONG CHRISTIANS OR AMONG HUMANITY IN GENERAL. JESUS SAID THAT THE POOR WILL ALWAYS BE AMONG US. HOWEVER, WE CANNOT USE THAT REALITY AS AN EXCUSE TO STOP HELPING THE POOR. AND AS CHRISTIANS, WE DO NOT WANT TO RELY ON THE GOVERNMENT ALONE TO DO THE MINISTRY THAT GOD HAS CALLED US TO DO FOR ONE ANOTHER. We want to help our Christian brothers and sisters more than the bare minimum way that even non-Christians help one another. The New Testament instructs us to give generously according to what God has given to us. Another application for us as Christians is, is to love and embrace people with disabilities, both physical and mental. Kids, if you have somebody at your school who has different abilities than you, then go out of your way to encourage them and say nice words to them and to serve them because God loves them just as much as he loves anybody else. You hear that? The gospel of Jesus tells us that because of original sin, every person on earth, every person in this room has disabilities to varying degrees do you believe that you have disabilities it's because the power of sin has affected every part of our being our minds our 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 bodies our souls now this is the good news by god's grace he intervened And HE REDEEMS OUR DISABILITY FOR HIS GLORY AND FOR OUR GOOD, SO THAT EVEN DISABILITIES FROM BIRTH ARE NOT AN ACCIDENT. THEY ARE SOVEREIGNLY DESIGNED BY GOD TO DISPLAY HIS GLORY ON EARTH AND IN HEAVEN. SO WHEN WE SEE A PERSON WHO'S DIFFERENT THAN US, WE SHOULD SEE OURSELVES IN THEM, OKAY? AND SO WE PRAY FOR THEM IN OUR HEAD. AND we, we befriend them. We, we learn from people who are different than us. And we don't want to embarrass anybody by putting unnecessary attention on them because of their different abilities. We simply need to treat every human being for what they are. A human being <laughs> made in God's image. And so we praise Jesus as Christians because we know that in His death on the cross... Jesus put to death our eternal disabilities that prevent us from knowing God fully and from living life abundantly in eternity. As a result of Jesus' atoning work on the cross, we who trust in Jesus will be healed completely someday of all of our disabilities in our bodies and our minds and our souls. And we may experience some of that healing during our lives on earth, but we will definitely experience the totality of healing when Jesus brings us home to him in heaven. I praise God, I, mean, I was just thinking about Orville again. He's with Jesus now. I and mean, this guy has, his legs don't hurt anymore, right? He's not on morphine anymore, he's on Jesus. Praise God, isn't that awesome? That's our hope. <clears throat> So, in today's passage, we got this 40-year-old man who can't walk. He's been carried around by his friends his whole life to the temple to beg for money. And we read in verse 3 that while he was lying there on the ground, he saw Peter and John, it says, as they were getting ready to go through the temple gate. And he yelled out to them to get their attention. And he asked them if they had any spare change. And then Peter and John do something unusual. Okay, this is an unusual response. Verse four says that they directed their gaze at him, which at a basic level means that they looked at him. And that in itself is kind of unusual because what do most people do when they pass someone on the street asking them for money? They don't look at him, right? But here, even though Peter and John are on their way to do important religious stuff, they stop and they look at this man in the face. And more than that, This word gaze means they stared at this guy intently, okay? And Peter says, look at me. Look at us. Look into my eyes, okay? And verse 5 says that the beggar fixed his attention on them. So he, he had called out to them, and in a way he wasn't really looking at them. But now he looks at them in the eye, and he was expecting them to, Give him some money. Why else would they be talking to him? Why else would they want his attention? And Peter tells the man, I have no silver or gold. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter genuinely had no money on him, but he had a gift for this man that was incredibly better than what the man was asking for. Peter commands the man now, TO DO SOMETHING THAT EVERYBODY KNOWS THIS MAN CANNOT DO ON HIS OWN. IN THE NAME OF JESUS CHRIST, PETER COMMANDS THE MAN TO RISE UP AND TO WALK. PETER'S CONFIDENCE HERE IS REMARKABLE, OKAY? BECAUSE THIS IS THE KIND OF THING JESUS DID. THIS ISN'T THE KIND OF THING MERE PEOPLE DID. THIS IS THE KIND OF THING JESUS DID. PETER HAD HEALED SOME PEOPLE EARLIER uh, when, WHEN JESUS WAS ON EARTH, BUT NOT SINCE JESUS WENT TO HEAVEN. And so we see here that the power of Jesus' spirit inside believers is just as powerful when Jesus is in heaven as when he was on earth. You hear that? And verse verse 7 says that Peter took the man by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately the man's feet and ankles were made strong. Before then his ankles had never been strong enough to hold his weight. And verse 8 says that what did the man do? He leapt. He leapt. He jumped up into the air and he stood. It's very now listen. The the writer here, Luke, is being very repetitive with his words. Luke was a physician, okay? And so he sees what's going on and he's repeating these words. He stood, he walked. Because this is incredible. He's trying to get through our heads. This is amazing. He'd leapt, he'd never leapt before. He stood, he'd never stood before. And then he began to walk around, he'd never walked around before. And then he walked into the temple with Peter and John. And the man was so joyful, it says, that he was walking through the temple and leaping in the air and praising God. Have you ever been so happy that you leapt? You ever thought about that? That's a happy, joyful thing to make you leap in the air. I remember in Swaziland when we gave a woman an audio Bible. For the first time, she had the Bible in her own language, and she ran away leaping down the road. She was so thrilled to have the Bible in her language. Verses 9 and 10 say that everybody in the temple, which would have been a lot of people, saw this formerly disabled man walking around and praising God. And he was not quiet in the temple. He was loud in his worship. He worshiped loudly. And all the people recognized this man because they'd seen him every day lying down at this beautiful gate asking for money. And the fact that everybody recognized him made it undeniable that this healing was not a fake. It was not some type of magic trick. This man was the same beggar that they had, been, they, they had passed by hundreds of days before. Decades, for decades, three times a day, people had passed by this guy. And so verse 10 says that, that as a result, everybody in the temple was filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And as everybody gathered around this man with Peter and John, Peter now uses this opportunity to preach the gospel point to Jesus. And in the future, we're going we're to look more closely at what Peter told them. But today, I just want to focus on verses 1 to 10 and some details here. And specifically now, I want to talk about the name of God that Peter invokes. I want to talk about the way that Peter heals this man. I want to talk about what this healing meant at the time and what this passage means for you and me, okay? So first, let's talk about the name of God, that Peter invokes. Peter heals this man in the name of, quote, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So, Jesus, remember, told us to pray in his name. That doesn't mean that that's a magic formula, and every time you pray in his name, you're going to get exactly what you want. That's not what it means. In the Jewish world, your name was something much bigger than a word used to get your attention. Okay. Your name was a description of you, of who you are. So doing something in the name of someone was calling on them, it was calling on their being. And so only twice in the Bible is Jesus referred to by this title, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And both instances happen here in Acts three and four. This title, it's a really cool title. It reflects the reality that Jesus is both God and man, okay? If you look at this, Jesus or Yeshua was the name given to Jesus at birth, and Jesus means the Lord saves. That's what the, the, his name meant. Christ is the title that the Jews used for the Messiah, right? It means Messiah. It, it reflects Jesus' divine role as our Savior, JESUS uh, IS OUR MESSIAH, THE ONE WHOM GOD PROMISED TO SEND TO THE JEWS AND TO THE WORLD TO SAVE US FROM SIN. AND AT THE SAME TIME THAT JESUS IS THE SAVIOR, the, the Savior LORD WHO SAVES, HE IS ALSO OF NAZARETH. He, HE WAS A MAN, AND HE WAS A MAN WHOM THE JEWS KNEW. HE WAS BORN AMONG THEM, HE'D GROWN UP AMONG THEM, HE'D WORKED AMONG THEM. But it was more than that. Jesus is God who left heaven and took on human flesh to live among us. So the title of Jesus here is Jesus Christ uh, Christ of Nazareth. It's essentially the gospel in a name. It says that Jesus is the Lord, our savior who saves, who became human in order to save humans from sin. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And just as Jesus' hometown of Nazareth was an unimpressive, humble place, so also Jesus was a humble man who died the most humble and humiliating death, death on a cross. Jesus, from from heaven, condescended to the earth. He condescended to the manger. He condescended to a cross to suffer God's wrath for us. He condescended to the grave. But just as he condescended, so also we are so thankful that he ascended after that. We who trust in Jesus are joyfully awestruck by the reality that Jesus ascended from death. He ascended from the tomb. He he ascended into the sky, and he ascended to the right hand of God the Father, where he is and forever will be exalted above every name of, of all creation, over all creation, okay? what a beautiful name this is, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Okay, the second thing I want to, to mention is the way that Peter heals this man. And again, one of the things we talk about in the Gospel of John is that when Jesus healed people, he didn't always heal them the exact same way. There wasn't a formula he followed. And probably that's because if there were, we would all be trying to find out this magic formula to get everything we wanted. But uh, We know that in this instance, Peter looked at this man, he invoked the name of Jesus, he commanded the man to stand, and then he helped him stand. But here's a more interesting question, I think. What led Peter to heal this man on that day? I mean, think about this. This beggar had been lying at the same gate his whole life. Peter had likely gone through that same gate many times on many different occasions. Why didn't Peter heal this guy earlier? If Peter could at any time call on the name of Jesus to heal anybody at any time, why didn't he heal this man weeks ago? In fact, why didn't Peter just go around Jerusalem and heal everybody? Well, I don't think it's explicitly clear in this passage, but it appears that Peter and John were at the same time prompted by the Holy Spirit to heal this man. It is unusual that at the same time, both men felt compelled to stare at this man. And both men, they called for his attention. And from the descriptions that Jesus gave us about the Holy Spirit, and from the way that we see the Holy Spirit work throughout the Bible, it appears that the Holy Spirit prompted this healing according to his own sovereign and wise timing, and according to His own grace. This is what we talk about, this is what we mean when we're talking about God's sovereign grace. I agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones who said that the spiritual gifts are always controlled by the Holy Spirit. They are given and one does not know when they're going to be given. Let me prove this to you by illustrating that in the case of miracles. Look at the apostles in Acts. They have the gift of miracles, but what is so interesting to observe is that the apostles never made experiments or tried to heal somebody, wondering whether it would happen or not. No, there were no trials, no experiments, and no failures. What is still more interesting is that the apostles never made an announcement that they would work miracles on such and such a day. They never put up a poster saying, come on Thursday, there will be miracles performed. Never, why not? THERE'S ONLY ONE ANSWER. THEY NEVER KNEW WHEN IT WAS GOING TO HAPPEN. WHAT CLEARLY HAPPENED WAS THAT THEY WERE SUDDENLY CONFRONTED BY A SITUATION AND THE COMMISSION WAS GIVEN TO THEM. SUCH IS THE CASE WITH TODAY'S PASSAGE. THE HOLY SPIRIT PROMPTED PETER AND JOHN TO PAY ATTENTION TO THIS MAN AND THE HOLY SPIRIT PROMPTED PETER TO CALL OUT TO HIM. THE HOLY SPIRIT PROMPTED PETER TO DECLARE HEALING FOR THIS MAN IN THE NAME OF JESUS CHRIST this was not something that Peter did every day all the time this was a unique situation and we will soon see that God would supplement this healing with a powerful declaration of the gospel which is an off uh, a common pair that we see in the new testament there's a healing and it's accompanied by a gospel proclamation which preaches spiritual healing in Jesus Christ now, in addition to setting up an opportunity for Peter to preach the gospel in the temple, what else did this healing mean at this time in history? That's the third point I want to address. What was the meaning of this? Well, the healing of this physically disabled beggar was not merely merely an act of God's grace, though it was, and it was not merely a platform to preach the gospel. The healing was also a sign. Okay? Signs point to things right and this was a sign that pointed to the reality that we are living in the last days okay the last days on earth began when Jesus came to earth and they will end when Jesus comes the second time so for the past 2,000 years we've been living in the last days And the ancient Jewish prophets who wrote the Old Testament prophesied about a future time in history when this would happen. When the Messiah would redeem creation from sin and when he would begin to restore his creation. And we already read one of those passages, uh, those prophecies from Joel, remember, in Acts chapter 2. But uh, also, it's about 700 years before the birth of Jesus, another ancient prophet named Isaiah wrote about the last days. And let me read a little excerpt from Isaiah 35, 4-6. He wrote, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God. HE WILL COME AND SAVE YOU THEN THE EYES OF THE BLIND SHALL BE OPENED AND THE EARS OF THE DEAF UNSTOPPED THEN SHALL THE LAME MAN LEAP LIKE A deer, AND THE TONGUE OF THE MUTE SING FOR JOY FOR WATERS BREAK FORTH IN THE WILDERNESS AND STREAMS IN THE DESERT AND IT KEEPS GOING WHEN JESUS AND THE APOSTLE'S Performed miracles, they were demonstrating that the last days on earth had begun. Okay, because Jesus put sin to death on the cross, He alone has the power to redeem and restore all of His creation, which thankfully includes us. Every miracle we see in the New Testament is evidence that the last days are here, and they're also evidence that all who trust in Jesus will be healed, either in this life or the next. So the last days on earth have not yet reached their fruition because Jesus has not returned yet. And so we still suffer the consequences of sin to varying degrees. And and thankfully, God graciously gives us foretastes of heaven to various degrees. And so we praise God for all of the ways that he gives us grace and help in our lives. Grace is unmerited favor to people who do not deserve it and who actually deserve hell. This is what grace is. And so we praise God for that. We thank him for his grace. And while we wait for his return, we read in Romans eight, all creation is groaning for his return. Second Corinthians five says that we're waiting to get out of these tents of our bodies. We're groaning for the return of Jesus. We pray to Jesus, this is why the Bible ends with, come Lord Jesus, come, because we who belong to Jesus look forward to the day of his return when he will completely restore us in body and mind. Derek Thomas writes that Jesus's atonement and healing belong together But this does not mean that when we believe in Jesus, we can expect to be healed immediately. But it does mean that the cause of our sickness, sin, has been dealt with, and eventually in the world to come, we will be healed. So to those who experience disability in this world, there is the promise that in the world to come, they will enjoy the liberty and blessing of a new body, And in our resurrection bodies, every last trace of what sin has done to us will be gone forever. Isn't that awesome? That's because of Jesus. And the fourth thing I want to mention about today's passage is what this means for you and me. In addition to everything we've talked about, what else does today's passage mean for you and me? Well, if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you are trusting Jesus for friendship with God, reconciliation with God, for eternal life, for salvation from hell, you may have not experienced yet the fullness of physical healing, right? But you have experienced something better. That's what Jesus wants you to know. The salvation of your soul through faith in Jesus Christ. That is better. Because even the people Jesus healed physically, if they didn't trust in him, they would die, right? They would die without him. That's worse. To know Jesus is better than to have physical healing right now. And in addition to the ways that that Jesus will strengthen you in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your pain during your life on earth, Jesus' salvation includes for you a perfect everlasting body and mind that he himself will give to you someday that will never again be susceptible to sickness and pain and death. Wow, that's awesome. And if Jesus has made you born again through faith in him, then I hope when you look at the lame beggar in today's passage, that you and I will see ourselves in him. Just like the beggar was looking for some money to scrape by, so also before Jesus saved you, you weren't looking to God and neither was I. Even if I thought I was looking to God, I was only looking to God for selfish gain. I wasn't looking to God for the glory of Jesus. But just like Peter and John locked their eyes on the beggar, so also God locked his eyes on you. Not because there was something incredibly good about your morality or your oppressiveness. God locked his eyes on you and determined to save you because he loves you and according to the counsel of his perfect will is the way we read in the New Testament. He created you so that he could bless you with himself and so that you could glorify him with everything that you are. So don't waste what you have and what you are. <laughs> Use it for the glory of God, because it's from God. And Peter told the beggar to, to stand up. While, what? While he couldn't do it. While he was still lame. It was impossible for the beggar to do this. It took the Holy Spirit to empower him to do this. And in the same way, Jesus commanded you to trust in him while you were dead to him and while you were chained to your sins. But just as the power of the Holy Spirit worked through Peter to give new life to the beggar's legs, so also when you heard the gospel of Jesus, at some point, Christian, the Holy Spirit worked with the power of God to give you new spiritual life, making you born again. God freed you from the power of sin over your life. He gave you the power to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus and to depend on Jesus forever. That's an awesome miracle. And, and just as this new man, I love this, he, he gets up, he, what does he run to? He runs into the temple. He wants to be with the people. He wants the same dignity he's been looking for. He wants the same belonging he's been looking for. This is what Jesus does for us. He brings us to God. He brings us into belonging, a place where we're, with, we're near to God now, and we're near to his people. It's awesome. And since God has given you new life with him, just like he gave life to the new beggar, you want to respond the same way the beggar responds here, with joy in the Lord. Do we rejoice in our salvation? Are we thankful to the Lord? Are we praising the Lord? We sing this song that says, we breathe in his grace and we breathe out his praise, That's how this works. It's a joy to do that. So may God help us to be thankful for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Read Psalm 103 this week and and join the psalmist in thanking God for all of his benefits. Praise Jesus for suffering God's wrath for us on the cross so that we don't have to. Praise Jesus so that in, because in Jesus, we're safe. We have have eternal life now. We have eternal joy. We have freedom in Christ. We've been saved from sin. We've been saved from Satan and death and hell. We're safe. You're not safe if you're not in Jesus. You get that? You're not protected. You need Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. So we praise God for doing this for us, and we praise God, praise God for, for the, the, the totality of our salvation that promises us that one day we will have total healing and restoration in mind and body and soul. Amen. So may we rejoice and praise God like the, the beggar did here. And if you're here today and, and, and you're not clicking with all of this, and, and, and maybe you don't have a friendship with Jesus, then talk to Jesus and ask him to give you faith. Ask him to save you. Because You're not saved, you're not rescued by God because of who you are or who you aren't. You're rescued or because of what you've done or what you haven't done. You're saved because you trust in Jesus and all that he is for you. If you look at your insert in your bulletin, at the bottom of the sermon notes insert, There should be a prayer written at the bottom of it. And I just wanna close our time together today by reading this. Perhaps this description of someone in great need is a description of you. The message of the gospel urges us to put all our hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this is me. I am in such great need and I find myself unable to remedy my situation. I feel as though I am in a prison a prison of sin and guilt, and I cannot get out. Come to me and release me. By the help of the Holy Spirit, I cast myself upon your mercy. Let me experience the sound of those chains falling away from me. Let me see the light that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me walk out of my prison, forgiven, healed, restored, a new creation. Amen.